The New Testament reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening this treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, 
They left for their own country by another road. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Welcome into this season of Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is a time when we are called to wonder, to be drawn into this mystery of what it is that God did to take on human flesh and to live among us and to bring about our salvation. So we've been through Advent in the church calendar and during Advent we were waiting waiting with expectation, but we were waiting and hoping, hoping the idea that after darkness, light. Well, epiphany is when we get to wonder and stare and gaze and have our attention captured by this divine light that has come into the world. We get to explore who Jesus is as an incarnate God among us during the season of Epiphany, and we're using quite specifically the Gospels. Now, the Gospels, there are four Gospels, right? They all, they repeat some of the same events. They even quote each other. There's a lot of interlinking between the Gospels, but they all have their own flair, their own flavor, their own personality. And so we're reading today in Matthew, and we have to ask ourselves, what is it that Matthew is doing? How is Matthew painting this gorgeous portrait of who Jesus is and what he has come to do? And Matthew spends quite a bit of time answering those questions. Who is Jesus, and where did he come from? Matthew is going to start in chapter 1 right away, verse 1, right off the bat, with a genealogy which is not overly exciting. Uh, A lot of people kind of run their eyes down the list of names and then continue on. But the genealogy is crafting these little packets of stories. Each name is a story. And in Matthew's genealogy, he's telling us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the idea is he's flagging from the very beginning that Jesus belongs to this very deep and very rich Israelite and Jewish narrative. And that what God has already been doing, God is continuing to do in the life of Jesus. Matthew skips details of the birth narrative. We have to go to Luke to find all of those details. Matthew instead starts to pull together these stories of events and people who are coming to gaze and look at Jesus. And so part of what Matthew is doing is showing us who Jesus is through these events and through people who are looking at Jesus. And quite interesting in Matthew from the very beginning, from the genealogy all the way to the very end, Matthew delicately weaves in this Gentile story where there are Gentiles who are in the genealogy of Jesus and there are Gentiles who look at Jesus and see and notice who he is. And so Matthew is already flagging for us that this this person of Jesus, he is coming and he is going to be the one who can pull Jew and Gentile together in a family. And part of this comes out in our narrative here in Matthew chapter 2. 
Now, if you've been here before when I preach and then add maps here because I get really excited about context, I want to just flag just a few surrounding details of Matthew chapter 2. It'll help us understand what's going on and why different characters are reacting in different ways. So this is during the time of the Roman Empire, but prior to Rome, Greece had already come, so from the Mediterranean world and pushed under the leadership of Alexander the Great, pushed all the way out to modern-day India, right, and then retracted. In that eastern space, as the Greek Empire started to fail and as the Roman Empire was growing to the west, a local indigenous people group um, from kind of the heart of the ancient Persian Empire started growing up and forming their own empire and pushing this Western Hellenistic influence back towards the Mediterranean. That is the Parthian, the Parthian or the Persian Empire. So I gave you a map here so you could see it's quite a large and dynamic empire that was a big power structure off to the east. When Rome is growing in its empire strength, Rome wants to be able to take all of the land that is surrounding the Mediterranean Sea because right at the eastern edge of the Mediterranean is actually where all of the sea routes and the land routes converge. And if you can hold on to those sea and, and land routes, you have access to all these expensive products that are being exchanged in the ancient world. Rome wanted all of the money it could get from these trade routes. So Rome was determined to hang on to the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you look and kind of squint in a real faint red oval, there is that small oval that is Herod's land. And Herod is the person that we're going to, one of the characters we're going to talk about today. So you can see how Herod's land is important land because the Parthenian Empire is coming from the east and Rome needs Herod to hold that territory so that they can get all of the trade. Now, who is Herod? Herod, also called Herod the Great, who has a lot of books and a lot of monuments written, uh, written about him and um, have been erected to his power and authority, is only mentioned in the Bible here in Matthew 2. So all the other Herods that we get through the rest of the Gospels or the spread of the church are Herod the Great's sons and grandsons, but none of them could live up to the authority and the power and the dynamics of Herod, which is why we call him Herod the Great. Who is he? Who was he? Because we get just such a tiny snapshot here. But he had a massive impact on that historical world. He was an Idumean. He was considered to be half Jewish, like not really a Jew, but sort of a Jew, and that comes with lots of like amazing dynamic history behind that. But he's half Jewish. His dad was chosen by Rome when Rome first 
um, set foot on this part of the land. It was his dad that was put in charge on Rome's behalf. And so Herod's dad then petitioned for Herod and his brother to be the next ones in charge of maintaining this Roman presence in the land. So Herod the Great, before he was the Great and he was simply just a Herod, his job as this new governor was to help quell a rebellion that had grown up. So the Jews who had only just been taken over by Rome, 15, 20 years, like Rome is very new in the area, the Jews start to rebel and they turn to the east, to the Parthians, to ask for help. And so there's this Jewish-Parthian partnership in order to push Rome fully off the whole Mediterranean area. So Herod's, like, he cuts his teeth politically by fighting battles against Jews and Parthians in order to establish Rome's control, and he almost loses. His brother dies in all of this drama, Herod goes to Rome and says, I need a proper title and I need a proper army if I'm going to do this. And they say, okay, let's call you king of the Jews and here's an army. And so he brings the army in and under his leadership, he is able to firmly, firmly get uh, Rome anchored onto the ground. So that's a little bit of the backstory. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 2, now bring all of this in to what you're reading in Matthew chapter 2. This is the very end of Herod's career. He's going to die in about a year or two right after this event that's recorded here. We know that Herod was a ruthless ruler. He was greedy for power. Rome wouldn't let him go out and conquer additional territory, but he had to prove how amazing he was. And so he built things. And he built things that conquered nature. So a palace that looks like it's floating on water, or a palace in the desert where no water exists. Right? Uh, he takes mountains and he makes them flat, and he builds things on top of it. He moves mountains to create a more elevated area where he can build a palace and display how amazing he is. He also was very suspicious of anyone that he thought might try to take authority and take his kingdom and power away from him. So he was known for killing his sons, multiple sons, and his most favorite wife, based on rumors that they were going to take over and kick him out. So at the very, very end of this fanatic, kind of a brilliant ruler, because he was able to keep peace, but one willing to kill anyone and everyone who got in the way of his authority, this is when this event takes place. And five miles from Jerusalem, in a small little village of Bethlehem, one little baby is born. And during this time of epiphany, as we all come to gaze at this little baby, we see how different people have different reactions to who this baby is. So read with me from Matthew 2. So in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is the seat of power. Right? This is where Herod has a palace. This is where the Jews have their temple. 
Jerusalem has always been the seat of power. And so if you are going to see a king or to have this governmental interaction and conversation, you go to Jerusalem. And so they go to Jerusalem and they ask of the king who's in a palace in Jerusalem, who was given a title by Rome, king of the Jews, they ask, where is the child who's been born king? Oh, let that sink in. Not who was it that later in his life was given a title so he could rule. No, who's the actual authentic born to rule king of the Jews? So you can see, now, people from the east. Well, what is east of where Herod is ruling? They're Parthians. There's a few actual different um, ideas of who these magi actually are, but they're coming from this Persian, Parthenian empire from the east. So put yourself in Herod's position. You've been granted a title, and you spent all of the early days of your career fighting this Jewish Parthian rebellion. And now Parthians are showing up in your palace and saying there's one who is actually born to be the ruler of the people. We'd like to meet him. And Herod starts shaking in his boots. Right, so there's a little bit of, well, where did you come from and how do you know? And I love it because these magi who are intent, they're um, stargazers, they're interpreters of dreams, and they're foreigners. And when they show up, they're like, we've been watching the heavens. And the whole fabric of the universe is shifting. There's been a change. And we're paying attention. And so we're following that. Right, so not only is this baby born, but the baby that's born is sending out ripples through the universe. Herod, as we look at his reaction to understanding that there is a baby who's been born, who is king, gathers the Sadducees, gathers the priests together, and goes, what the heck? Like, what's going on? This is Jerusalem. This is the seat of power. And if that child isn't here, where's the child going to be? And this is when those who are well-learned in the Hebrew scriptures, they can turn to Micah chapter 5. And in Micah chapter 5, actually, anytime the New Testament writers start referring to and quoting Hebrew Bible, they always mean the entire context of all the surrounding things. So if you go and read Micah chapter 4 and Micah chapter 5, you see that in Micah, the prophet is telling the people, you are getting ready to get squashed and annihilated by the Assyrian Empire. But God promises that Jerusalem is going to be elevated above all the cities and that there is going to be a ruler who is not going to come from Jerusalem, but come from a very humble village five miles south of Jerusalem in a place called Bethlehem. And like the great King David, who was also born in Bethlehem, this particular one is going to be the greatest of all shepherds who will gather his people under the goodness of his reign. So that whole context is what Matthew is pointing to when he speaks, uh, when he's quoting 
um, this portion in chapter two. Now, Herod, if we only read these verses, Herod sounds like he's going, oh great, I'd love to also go worship this child. Except we know in the verses following our passage today that Herod is actually trying to kill this child. That Herod's reaction to gazing at this infant is fear that he's going to lose his kingdom, that he's going to lose the way that he has shown his authority, his greatness and his power. And he is worried about what is coming to challenge him. The wise men here are different people that we can look at and see what their reaction is. They make that really short journey, takes an hour, depending on how fast their caravan is traveling out of Jerusalem, going south towards Bethlehem. And so they go out and it says in verse 10, when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid homage. There's something incredible about these great leaders and advisors of a country going to a place that is unexpected. It's not a palace, it's a village. It's not a huge house, it's just a family house. There's going to be a hard dirt floor. And even in that context, in the midst of family, they recognize that this child is royalty. And they themselves, who could also be considered royal to a certain extent, bow down and worship. This sign of humility, of awe, of who it is that they are seeing, despite the signs surrounding this child, that he's just an ordinary child. They recognize his specialness. And then they give him the gifts of a proper king. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And part of filling the church with the smoke of frankincense was to usher you into that sense of, this is the smell of royalty. This is not the smell of a common house. Common people don't get to have frankincense burn in their house. This is a royal smell, right? And this is what they are offering to this child in recognition of the greatness of who this child is going to become. So we should ask ourselves then, like in taking Matthew's theme, if Matthew is so good throughout his gospel of putting events and people together to teach us of who Jesus is, what do we learn? Well, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, who is the only one able to pull Jew and Gentile together as a family. From Herod, maybe, and Herod's reaction, we can even learn, Jesus is the one who will upset kingdoms. Because the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is not built the way that humans like to build kingdoms, with authority and greatness and power where we puff up our chests and we put names outside buildings and we put things in lights and we just want everyone to know like who is in charge. That is not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And from the Magi, well, there's a couple things. Right? The Magi invite us into what they did, this wondering, this beautiful part of wondering. And for those who lean towards the mystics among us, I don't know how many we have here, but the mystics always ask this question of, 
What happens when the divine, who is infinite, chooses to um, make himself smaller and put into human body? And that spark of the divine in human flesh has the ability to send out ripples through the universe. But we also see the power of God, how God speaks many languages, right? That God can use the stars to speak to those who watch the stars. That God can use his scriptures to those who look to scriptures for wisdom. That God can use the arts to speak to those who are inclined to pay attention to the arts. That God can use science and detail. That God can use literature. That the languages God can speak are infinite to be heard by those who who need to hear an invitation to be drawn to the divine in their own language. And we also get the idea of how do we respond when we come into contact with the divine? What is our, do we hunker down in fear because we want to control the narrative? Or do we open ourselves up to be humble and to bow and to just engage the sense of wondering what it is that the divine is going to do for us. So I would like to invite all of us in this season of epiphany as we gain to see Jesus and see God through Jesus um, to come with wonder so that we can come and engage and maybe learn and see Jesus in a whole new way. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, thank you for breaking in to our world, for speaking the kinds of languages we all need to hear in order to be drawn to you. Thank you for the way that you do so persistently pursue people and call people in. And may we react with joy, with curiosity, with wonder, and may the season of epiphany in the life of those at resurrection be a season where we're gazing at you with new eyes and our attention is just captivated by the divine light that was shown into the world. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. And now if you're willing and able, if you would please stand as we wonder while we wander, getting closer and closer to who Jesus is.